The following podcast has been paid for by Perched on the Top Rope. Welcome, everyone, to a spooktacular edition of Perched on the Top Rope. I am your host, former dirt sheet writer from Daily DDT, the sportster, the richest, sports Kita, and ringside news. I am your host, Lee Walker, and this is my Halloween Havoc, the 13 most horrifying gimmicks in WWE. Whether it be zombies, vampires, or evil clowns, WWE has always had an obsession with the evil side. So ladies and gentlemen, let's see who the unlucky, or maybe lucky in their eyes, depending on how you view it, are the 13 most horrifying gimmicks in WWE. And ladies and gentlemen, I am starting out with one that's going to shock you. I am starting out with Jake the Snake Roberts at number 13. When he debuted, Jake the Snake Roberts had all the credentials to be the top-tier superstar in the WWF. He was manipulative, a vocal mastermind, who could cut a scathing promo on his opponents and life in general, but, but the psychology of the snake wouldn't fully be realized until he turned on fan favorites like Ultimate Warrior and Randy Savage showing not only his true colors, but his fangs as well. Now, Roberts had put the Ultimate Warrior through hellacious tests of strength and will, ending with a live burial of the Ultimate One. Then, he would attack a defenseless macho man with a King Cobra in a heinous, vicious assault. And if you remember, during Macho Man Randy Savage wedding with Miss Elizabeth, one of the presents that Macho Man and Miss Elizabeth opened up was a snake. A present from Jake the Snake Roberts. Roberts had adapted an increasingly cynical devil-may-care attitude as the days went by, ev- eventually adopting this catchphrase, Trust me. On his way to the dark side, Roberts had become one of the WWF's best predators and was the original Cerebral Assassin. Now, I did say, fans, I would be picking some that weren't so scary, and I'm going to start at number 12, Kevin Thorne in Ariel. The WWE's debut on the Sci-Fi Network, with its rebranding of ECW, WWE brought several established mid-carters and a few impressive newcomers a vampire, and a tarot reader. Yeah, that's right. I said a tarot card reader. Uh, From the first episode of ECW on Sci-Fi, WWE teased that it had a vampire lurking around the arena while his valet 
would give tarot card readings at random intervals. The two would not officially unite until nearly a month into the program, at which they appeared even weirder than predicted. Kevin Thorne had previously worked as a character known as Mordecai. It was a bad gimmick, not going to lie. And again, he was escorted by Ariel, and the two would give exchange seductive looks. Then they would participate in aggressive dry humping during their post-match win celebrations. So if the idea of vampires doesn't freak you out, this certainly did. Thorne would be repackaged at least twice before being shown the door. And unfortunately, Ariel, her wrestling run didn't end as well as you would have thought. She didn't really accomplish much in professional wrestling. As far as Kevin Thorne, the Mordecai gimmick and the Kevin Thorne gimmick, at one point, ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Thorne's gimmick as Mordecai was actually supposed to have a run with The Undertaker while speaking on the latest episode of Sports Kita's Wrestling's Unscripted. Kevin Thorne had highlighted that a bar fight in 2004 led to the premature end of the Mordecai WWE SmackDown run. I was supposed to go against The Undertaker and Eddie Guerrero, said Thorne. I was supposed to do a lot of stuff, but I ended up being an idiot, and I got into a fight in a bar, and it just didn't work out. Just didn't work out that way, man. So, live and learn. The things we could have seen, but the drink stopped it. So at number 11, we're going to go from one bad vampire gimmick to one that was actually good. Ladies and gentlemen, number 12 is Gangrel. Like I said, some vampire gimmicks don't work. This one did. Even if it was only for about 18 months. The thing is with Gangrel is those vampire teeth are permanently fixed in his mouth. So when WWE finally got their hands on Gangrel, They kept him in the same digs, but this time they took it a step further. Gangrel came to the ring to a really, really dark theme song. He had a ring of fire around him, and he would come up from the bottom of the stage and would victimize several WWF stars with bloodbaths where buckets would drop from the ceiling at will. You know, like I said, even his ring entrance, Gangrel sipped on a goblet before spitting it over the steps. In a ritualistic nature, was something to behold. But after numerous attempts to forge a comeback, the Gangrel character would disappear from television altogether. However, he is still going around the independent scene, working the character. And I mean, this man started the brood with Edge and Christian... And then they were part of the corporate ministry for a little while. And you will never, I promise you, never forget that theme song that he had. Ever. We are now breaking into our top ten, ladies and gentlemen. And in at number ten, I gave this spot to Nails. I know what you're thinking. What? Well... Kevin Walcaus, I I can't pronounce his last name, I'm pretty sure that's it, 
there's some people who are just scary, regardless whether or not they're playing a character. And this guy is one of those people. When he was brought into the WWF in 1992, uh, Walt Calls was given the persona Nails, an ex-convict who was biding his time to get revenge on Cobb County's own The Big Boss Man. Nails cut disturbing, gravely promos that detailed how he'd been abused by the boss man for years in the pen. When he was a big man who looked like a hulking murderer and wrestled about the same way. By 1992's Survivor Series, Bossman and Nails would finally meet up and settle the score. Then one month later, Walcalls went off the deep end and, in a verbal confrontation with Vince McMahon, picked up the owner of the company and viciously strangled him. While lawsuits between the two filed, a few could forget the images of Nails in his orange jumpsuit during the fall of 1992. I know I couldn't. I remember him very, very, very vividly. He was a big, mean, muggin', scary-looking dude. And speaking of scary-looking dudes, you heard him in that show opener. Ladies and gentlemen, coming in at number nine is, that's right, it's the Boogeyman, and he's coming to get you. Some gimmicks were so ridiculous that they worked, and in 2005, that's how a lot of us in the WWE and fans had felt with such a gimmick for an aging Marty Wright. Wright was a former WWE Tough Enough contestant, though Wright lied about his age to be on the show. The WWE would later hire him, and the former contestant would paint his face in red and black and masquerade as a gyrating, hypnotic competitor known as the Boogeyman. He had an oversized alarm clock in one hand and a smoky staff in the other. His monitor consisted of bizarre nursery rhymes before promising that he would be coming to get ya. Then Boogie would smash himself over the head with that big clock, and of course, it didn't end there. The Boogeyman's antics included biting the mole off Jillian Hall's face and making his opponents eat live worms. It's creepy, disgusting, but it worked. And the Boogeyman would become a fan favorite for the next few years, and he's still a fan favorite anywhere he goes. And one thing I will not forget is that one special moment that he had in the Royal Rumble where he came face-to-face with Bray Wyatt and the entire crowd went nuts. It was like a match made in heaven, and unfortunately it only lasted about 30 seconds before Bray Wyatt threw the Boogeyman over the top rope, eliminating him from the Royal Rumble. Coming in at number 8, ladies and gentlemen, this one's going to shock you, but I picked Diamond Dallas Page. This one's going to take a bit of history to understand. Yes, DDP had an amazing career in WCW. He was a WCW World Heavyweight Champion. And at the peak of his popularity while there, he was even known for having a scorching hot valet slash wife, Kimberly Page. But when DDP made his way to the WWF in 2001 after the WWF purchased WCW, things were much different for the once self-proclaimed people's champ. 
Paige was introduced mysteriously through a series of closed-circuit vignettes in which he filmed The Undertaker's then-wife, Sarah. He would film her at her home or at a play, constantly interfering that she was his and his alone. The idea of a stalker, particularly one with a video camera strapped to his hand, is just terrifying. Paige had gone from being a face of WCW to being a sheepless, privacy-invading troll out of lust and out to destroy The Undertaker. Though he failed, this entry in Paige's career is easily his scariest. It wasn't good. Thankfully, it didn't last long. Though I wished his tenure in WWE slash WWF would have been better than what it was. Coming in at number 7, he wrestled for WCW and the WWF. He was well over 7 feet tall. And when I mean over 7 feet, we're looking at 7 foot 8 or more, ladies and gentlemen. The Giant Gonzalez. He had wrestled in WCW as El Gante after a potential NBA career fell through the cracks. He would join... World Championship Wrestling. The fact of the matter was that given his incredible size and dexterity, Gonzalez struggled to do even the simplest moves while wearing basically basketball shorts while he was in WCW. Once jumping to the WWF, the created team decided to mask his not-so-big muscles with an airbrushed muscle suit and tufts of hair covering his unmentionables. Yep, you heard me right, ladies and gentlemen. They thought this was going to get over. As John Gonzalez, he made an immediate impact by taking out The Undertaker, but as he has with all his foes, Taker would get revenge and Gonzalez would be little more than a footnote on the road through wrestling history for The Undertaker. A really big, hairy, airbrushed footnote for The Undertaker at that. <sighs> at one point, he ended up with Mr. Curtis Hughes, but they never really teamed together or anything like that. They just sort of worked like a faction as they were both going for The Undertaker. And this was a downfall, too, because Mr. Hughes would end up leaving WWF the first time around in 1993 when he was supposed to wrestle The Undertaker at WWF SummerSlam, and instead, the giant Gonzalez took that spot and would end up in a losing effort. Now, coming in at number six, ladies and gentlemen, whether you knew him as... Cactus Jack, Dude Love, Mankind. Ladies and gentlemen, Mick Foley is well known for his hardcore persona, Cactus Jack. It's how he started out in WCW, ECW, and then when he came to the WWF, he would be deemed Mankind. You know, he was also known for his fun-loving dude rocker, Dude Love. He's even a New York Times best-selling author with great passion for literature and the arts, but he didn't make the list for that. Foley had to channel his inner demons into the masked crusader of mankind. Mankind would debut through 
Like most WWF superstars of the time, promos and vignettes divulging details about his career fully warbled and whimpered through his words about the tortured past and constant longing for appreciation. He would scream and shriek at just the right moment, keeping his edge the entire way. Once he wrestled, Mankind appeared to be the sort of foe who just wanted a little attention, until he blew a fuse and completely ravaged his opponents. Everything about this sick and demented character was just that, sick and demented. After all, what kind of straight shooter spends his time in a broiler room? Now, Mankind had hellacious matches with Kane, Vader, Goldust, DX, Triple H, and including The Undertaker, which we all know that infamous Hell in a Cell match, which he was thrown off the cell, thrown through the cell, through the ring, and at one point was laughing while he was pushing his tongue through his lip because he had a hole in his lip and not like a lip ring. So, if you know anything about mankind, you know anything about Cactus Jack, you know the man was sick and sadistic, especially with those Japanese death matches with Terry Funk and others. So mankind specifically makes the list at number six. Now, coming in at number five, this one's going to shock some of you, but I need you to understand this. Number five is Doink the Clown. It's a fact. People hate clowns. I mean, people really hate clowns. So it should come to no surprise that WWF tried to capitalize on people's fears in the 1990s with a wrestling clown. When Doink emerged on the scene, he wasn't a fun-loving, slap-happy clown. People associate him with being nowadays. In fact, the original Doink was a terrifying blend of pranks and sadism. He would set up fans in the audience with balloons only to pop them, or squirt folks with his water flower. These pranks were minuscule when compared to the in-ring antics, where he would use prosthetic arms to injure opponents so he could also multiply on the spot. That and his theme music was actually really, really scary when he first debuted in the WWE or WWF at this time. Now, the original person who played Doink the Clown was Matt Osborne, who, if you don't know, you should probably look him up. Uh, he had his own demons and things that he was facing, so he did really, really well with this character. And the fact that at WrestleMania 10, Doink came face-to-face -face with his self Doink the Clown. Now, while I am on a golden era slash new gen era of the WWF, number four is Papa Shango. As wrestling is full of wacky characters, but few men have played the roles half a dozen times in their careers, Charles Wright is one of those rare performers who never seem to catch a break with his gimmicks. That is, until he became the Godfather. A pimping hustler with an escort service. He got his biggest start as Papa Shango. Standing over six feet tall with tattoos across his torso, 
Papa Shango was a voodoo witch doctor with a skull painted on his face and a bad attitude. He wore a black singlet with red ritual symbols and a tall black hat. Shango had all the looks of the witch doctor and would go on to feud with the Ultimate Warrior in 1992. In fact, his feud with Warrior was notable for showing the humanity and mortality of the Ultimate One, forcing his face paint to melt and creating the Warrior to vomit out of thin air. Which, that particular segment, he had this like black-like ooze coming down his forehead, and it was really freaky. And I remember the Warrior having these terrible stomach pains on a gurney with tons of people and medics around him, and he is throwing up this yellow-like bile. As a kid, it was terrifying. And you know what's even more terrifying? Is that legend has it that the Papa Shango character was the brainchild of the Ultimate Warrior himself. Now we are rounding into the top three, ladies and gentlemen. And coming in at number three, we have Kane. That's right, the big red machine was introduced as the long-lost brother to our tortured big evil in an effort by Paul Bearer to throw the Undertaker off his game. And it worked. As soon as Kane would become a reality seeking revenge for all the bad deeds Taker had done to him in their childhood. See, Kane and the Undertaker are brothers whose parents died in a terrible house fire that the Undertaker actually started. Kane was believed to be dead as well, yet he was actually just badly burned. We would also go to find out that his father was Paul Bearer and that over time he would learn to talk, abandoning that original voice box and apparently his scars healed. Since this is pro wrestling, I could go on about the backstory of the Big Red Machine. And I, I did a little bit. But here is some of the various indiscretions since Kane had debuted. Murder. Both impaled and attempt numerous accounts. Arson. Numerous accounts. Aggravated assault. Drunk driving. Vehicular manslaughter. Rape. Kidnapping. And generally being deemed a monster may also be a crime. Just saying. Just saying it could be. So who do we have at number two, folks? We have Kane's daddy. That's right, Paul Bearer, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Paul Bearer was known as the Undertaker's signature manager, whose background was in the funeral industry after earning a degree in mortuary science. Now, Paul Bearer was second in command for the Undertaker's undead army. He protected a sacred urn containing mystical powers and would often be the focal point in the Undertaker's biggest feuds. But it would be his blood-curdling voice that left the longest impression on the fans. Hoyas! Now, several attempts to take the urn had occurred throughout the Undertaker's career, and it all started off 
with Mr. Hughes being the first ever to steal The Undertaker's urn in 1993. So who's number one, ladies and gentlemen? Well, I think by those dongs, you can tell. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, it's The Undertaker. He was an indestructible force that felt no pain and could roll his eyes in the back of his head as you heard his entry music, a menacing graveyard symphony, inspiring the fear in his opponents. He would threaten to bury each and every one of his foes and oftentimes would succeed. Later on, The Undertaker would become... The face of the WWE with branded matches such as the Casket Match, the Buried Alive Match, Hell in a Cell, and an Inferno Match, to which the only way to win is to light your opponent on fire. To simply put, The Undertaker was everywhere and constantly terrorizing his opponents. He would grow to invoke the supernatural and even had a satanic edge to his persona at one point. But in the long run, the idea of the gimmick could last as long as it has and still be horrifying. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, The Undertaker was hands down the most terrifying thing that the WWF slash E had ever gotten their hands on in the industry, a character that wasn't supposed to last, especially once reaching the Attitude Era, where the idea of characters was no more and we were going for more real-life situational things. There's no comparison when it comes to Kane and The Undertaker, and I know that I read off some of the laws that Kane had broken, but The Undertaker had broken them first. After his matches... When he first debuted, he would pull out a body bag, put his opponents in the body bag, and take them with him. He would throw them over his shoulder like they were nothing more than a sack of potatoes and walk out with them over his shoulder, presumably to never be seen again. And casket matches galore with Kamala, Yokozuna... Gold dust, mankind. Now I will say this, the Undertaker didn't win them all and when he lost, you got some special effects like him inside the casket saying he'd be back. Earlier with mankind making this list at number six, I brought up how the Undertaker threw him off Hell in a Cell, put him through Hell in a Cell, put him through the ring and more. But let's not forget other things that happened in Hell in the Cell, like him hanging the big boss man from a noose. Or how Kane was brought in in the Hell in a Cell match between Undertaker and Shawn Michaels, to which Kane ripped the door right off the hinges. 
Now, I know that's not scary as far as The Undertaker, but when you put the two together, the Brothers of Destruction were just that. So, ladies and gentlemen, this rounds out my top 13 scariest wrestlers in the WWF slash WWE. They are scary indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to say this when I end. Happy Halloween, everyone. Remember, spoiler freeze, the way to be. I'm out.